shouting the good news, right? Everywhere we go. We have a great message. We have a great Savior. And that's the one thing we need to be talking about and shouting and proclaiming. Now, as we turn to Isaiah 50, I want us to begin by looking at where this is coming from. Where is all of this coming from? What is behind what God is speaking to us in these verses? And I believe where this is coming from is, can go back all the way to chapter 49, verse 14, which isn't that far. <laughs> when Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me, my Lord has forgotten me. We looked at that last week. And I want us to remember, to think back, to try to get ourselves back to where uh, God's people were thinking, to what they were thinking, to where they were at. God's people were complaining that God had forgotten them and that God had forsaken them. They were weary, they were pressed down, they were discouraged, they were ready to quit. And so we need to begin by asking, is this you today? Is this where you are at? Have you ever been here before? Just really discouraged. God's response we looked at last week was an emphatic denial that he had forgotten his people. He cannot forget his people. And instead he says, I love you. That's what God said last week. He says, I love you. He said to his people that I love you with a God-sized love. Remember, God expressed his love as a mother would love her child, her nursing infant. Just an incredible picture. God says, I love you more than that. I love you more than the greatest connection on earth. I love you more than that. No, I could not have forgotten you. And then he says, I think of you so much as if you were written on my own hand. I mean, imagine that picture of God having written you on his hand. And your hand is always in front of you and you always see it there, right? But it's not just written with ink that goes away. It's engraved on the palm of his hand. An incredible thought. And not only that, but then he opened up the window into his promises that belong to God's people. The future promises of God. He says, I love you so much, I'm just going to give you a glimpse of the incredible promises that belong to all of his children. No, no God has not forsaken. God has not forgotten his people. And the problem is, as we saw in the first three verses of this chapter last week, that his people were not listening to him. The problem was their sin, not, God, not a lack of God's love. They were not listening to him. Now, if I'm in a ditch, it's nice to know that you would want to help me out, right? If I had driven my car into a ditch, it would be nice to know that you would want and, and care for me and want to help me out, that you'd have those affections that were natural, you know, for someone who's in pain and hurting. 
But it is another thing to know if you can help me. And if you're able to help me. If you were to have any comfort, it is similarly important to know that God not only wants to save you, but that he can save you. And that he has a way of saving you. Right? So here God explains how he will save his people through his servant. And that's the, the good news of this third servant song that we're looking at today. We are moving right along through these servant songs. We have one more to go after this. And, and it's almost like it's progressing and it's revelation of who this servant is. And so we are moving right along. These are incredible, incredible um, passages focusing and centering. Everything else kind of passes away. And here comes Jesus. Because that's who these servant songs are all about. That's who the servant is. To the forefront of our, our, of our vision. He is brought up in front of us. So that we can see him and look at him. And that's what we need today. We need to see our Savior. We need to see Jesus. Once again, it's good to know that Jesus loves us affectionately, that he cares for us. But this is how he concretely expresses his love for us and his servant. How do we know this is a servant song? Just really briefly, just so you understand where we get this from. Because the servant is not mentioned in 4 through 9, the, the actual servant song. But in verse 10, it actually mentions the servant. And we can look at that and refer back to verses 4 through 9 and see this is the servant that we're talking about. Not only that, but what is written about the servant here can only be Jesus, can only be the Messiah. There's no one else who fits the, the mold that is described here. And so this is, without a doubt, a servant song. If you, like Judah, are discouraged and weary, <clears throat> wondering if God really loves you, you need to see the servant. You need to see his servant. That's the answer for us today. That's where God's love is found. That's where we see God's love for us. And if you see the servant, if you actually look at him and get a glimpse of him and understand who he is, you will say, I am not forsaken. God has not forgotten me. There's no way around that if you really see the servant today if you understand who he is. To feel the full weight of the comfort that the servant brings, you need to see a couple big ideas from these verses. Verses 4 through 9. I, I want to zero you in on a couple main points that are made here so that we can understand the fullness of what this picture is to give to us and understand the love of God for us today so that we don't think God has forsaken us and God has forgotten us. And the first thing we see is that everything the servant does is in contrast to his people, Israel. We are to see everything the servant does in contrast to Israel. Israel, where Israel failed, the servant is faithful. The, 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 the servant hears God. The servant obeys God. The, 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 the servant um, trusts God. He's going to vindicate him. Those are like the three main things we see throughout these verses here. Whereas Israel does not hear from God, doesn't listen to God, doesn't obey God, and does not um, believe that God loves them, believes that God has forsaken them and forgotten them. But also, notice a second theme, and this is so obvious, it just stands out emphatically, that the sovereign Lord empowers the servant to accomplish his mission. 
Four times here, the sovereign Lord is mentioned, either as empowering or helping and enabling him to accomplish his mission. In four through nine, four times, it is emphatically made clear that God enables and empowers his son to accomplish the mission. Incredible, um, important ideas that are brought out here. And so you need to see your failure contrasted to the faithfulness of the true servant of God and find comfort in that. Find comfort in that. See God's love for you today, not just in his affections that we saw last week, but also in the work that he accomplished through his son. God doesn't just feel love for you. He practically, actually loves his children. And he could not love us more. So the picture here of the servant should prove to you that God does not merely love you with warm feelings, but with action. And this should encourage you to follow God, as we will see in verses 10 through 11, in this dark and difficult and dreary and challenging world that we live in. In this world that is full of discouragement, This should encourage us to walk by faith. So if you look at the servant, in his completeness, you would see kind of a picture. You'd see a picture of God's love for you. You'd see a picture of God's faithfulness to you and his goodness. And this song gives us different aspects of the fullness of this picture that you need to see. It gives us different aspects of 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 the fullness of this victorious servant for us. And so I want us to look at him and be comforted. The first aspect of the picture of the servant is that he has an instructed tongue. Notice that in verse 4 there. And and what we see here is that Jesus is, you might say, a scribe. He is learned. He is discipled. He is a scholar. And notice what it says here. He was given the tongue of those who are taught. And sometimes we think of Jesus almost like some pop speaker we might hear today, maybe a a hippie who's rebelled against the idea of learning. Sometimes we might think of him that way. But it says here that Jesus was greatly learned. He was instructed as a disciple. What an interesting picture of Jesus that we're given here. So where did this come from? Where did his learning come from? Well, it came from God. The Lord God has given me. He awakens my ear to hear. Notice those words there. The sovereign Lord has given him an ear to hear. And from that, a tongue to speak. God gave his servant the knowledge and instruction and understanding that he needed. Now we might ask, how did God do this? How did God give his son this knowledge? How did he train men? Was it some endowment that was a gift given to him from above? Was it just like by osmosis? And I have no idea what osmosis is, but I figure it has something to do with just giving it to someone. (laughs) Is that how God gave us, gave his son the knowledge that he had? Notice what it says here. It says, morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. What this means is that God did not just work to give him the knowledge, that Jesus' ear was open to that knowledge. 
that he listened, that he was disciplined to hear and to learn and to grow. In other words, he was a continuous and disciplined learner. Behind the words that were given is a disciplined and trained and learned ear that Jesus had. He did not begin as a sharpened sword or as that arrow that is ready to be flung out of the, uh, into the air, was he? It wasn't instantaneous, but he learned. God opened, God taught, and he listened. And they both go together. And I want us to understand that. That he listened or was taught is well attested throughout scriptures. Listen to Mark 1 verse 35 where we look at, or if you want to look at there, it says that he was, he, morning after morning, he got up early and would pray and seek his Father. John 7, verse 16 says, My teaching isn't mine, but it is from the one who sent me. John 12, verse 49 says, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And so here's the first contrast between the servant and Israel, right? And us, is that the servant listens. The servant listens. So what is the result of having a listening ear? Look at the result here of what Jesus accomplished because he was learned and had a listening ear. It says here that he was able to he was able to sustain with a word those who are weary. He did not have a flashy ministry necessarily, nor did he have a condemning ministry primarily. Rather, his ministry was to sustain the weary with a word. Jesus, you might say, is the wonderful counselor. Right? This means that Jesus' words are not for those who are filled, not for those who are rested, not for those who are satisfied, or those who are inwardly justified, but those who are empty and needy, and those who are convicted, those who are feeling the weight of their sin, those who are feeling a neediness for God. We live in a dark world, and it has this effect of making us weary, doesn't it? It crushes us because we are sinful people, and we are weak, and we are needy, and we realize we are not okay, right? What makes people weary are things like sin and suffering and disillusionment, the world around us. It makes me think a lot of, uh, or it makes me think <laughs> of Lot, <laughs> right? In the Old Testament, who was tormented by the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah that was around him, right? He was weary. He was crushed. But Jesus came in order to speak comfort to the crushed and the needy. He came to speak words that, if received, would bring comfort and healing and strength to such people. So what does it mean for Jesus to be able to sustain a weary person with a word? Well, it means that he sustains our faith. It means that he keeps our faith strong when the world seems to be depleting us of everything. 
All true words of comfort originate from the mouth of God. They come from Jesus. It is through his word that every weary person is able to persevere. There's no one that can persevere without the words of God. And Jesus speaks those words because he is God. And his words sustain us. It is amazing that God sustains us with just a word. That amazing thought. It doesn't say with a paragraph here. And yes, the paragraphs sustain us. <laughs> but he says with just a word. Just a word he sustains us and keeps us alive. This is the power of God. And we have so many examples we can look at. People have gone through the most devastating circumstances who would hear a word from God, from his word, and it would sustain them through the difficulties that they would experience. I heard about a, a Minnesota private during the Civil War, who reportedly exclaimed these words, I can now live a month without eating. I have now gotten five letters from my wife. <laughs> he was being sustained with a word. With a word. How much more sustaining is the word of God? Infinitely more. So where do we see this? Where do we see Jesus sustaining the weary with a word? Well, Listen to Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all you all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Listen to Matthew twelve verse twenty. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. Jesus didn't come to put out the fire that was flickering and barely lit. He came to ignite it with his word. Jesus asked the disciples if they wanted to go elsewhere. Remember that. He said, do you want to leave me as well? Just about everyone else had left him. Remember what the response was? Where else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. This is the one who sustains us with the word. He is the one who gives us life. Remember what Jesus said, and this is a specific personal word that he said to the paralyzed outcast man who had faith. Remember what he said? Have courage, son. Have courage. He was an outcast. He was a man who was paralyzed. He had nothing going for him. He says, your sins are forgiven. Wow. Would that sustain you? Would that keep you going? And that's the very word we have from God, don't we? For those who are crushed and paralyzed and have that faith and are looking to him, we have a sustaining word. But that's only found in the word of God, in his gospel. Your sins are forgiven, aren't they, if you're in Christ? In a similar way, not, not, not one of us should expect to do any real good for anyone. You should not expect that you can do any good for anyone apart from being devoted to and trained by and disciplined and focused on God's word. Isn't it amazing that we think we can sustain or help anyone or do any good for anyone without knowing God's word and without conveying to people God's word, we cannot do an ounce of good for anyone unless it is from God's word. That is where the sustaining power comes from. It comes from the word of God. And so we have to ask ourselves, do we want to do good for those around us? 
Do we want to be an encouragement? Do we want to be a help to those around us? We can't do that without knowing God's word and being trained in it. It is impossible. If Jesus needed to be trained in the word of, word of God and had to hear from God speaking to him, how much more do we? And so the degree of good we will do is the degree we know and love and cherish God's word. Only to that degree will we be able to encourage and sustain each other in this life. It is amazing how we think we can do good without listening to God's word and being trained in it. As someone said, the tongue filled with the appropriate word of God is the product of an ear filled with the word of God. Modier said this, the morning-by-morning morning appointment is not a special provision or demand related to the perfect servant, but is the standard curriculum of all the disciples. That's really what it was saying, is that Jesus was the great disciple, <laughs> the premier disciple, the greatest of all. This should help us understand what learning and discipleship is all about. We don't learn and we don't grow so that people can be amazed at our knowledge or that people can be amazed at our oratory skills, right? But rather so that we can communicate God's word, that same word that sustains you first. We communicate it to others so that they can be sustained in this world and that we can be God's means of preserving his people and saving his people. Do you have this effect on people who are around you? Do you have the effect of, 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 of comforting and sustaining the weary? Is that the way you influence those around you? Because the word of God comes out of you? Only the gospel of Jesus Christ can sustain the weary. The second aspect of the picture of the servant is that he is faithful in obedience to the will of God through great suffering. Notice in verses 5 through 9, the great suffering he endured. And what is amazing here, and we already know this, but I want to remind you of this, because this is just amazing, and it's something that God's people need to embrace and take to their heart, is that Jesus was obedient in every way. Jesus was passionately obedient. He was driven to obedience. It says he was not rebellious and turned not backwards. Such obedience in itself is remarkable, isn't it, when you think about it? But what makes his obedience unique and what makes it glorious and what we love to think about when we think about his obedience is the cost of his obedience. Look at the cost that his obedience required. He says, I gave my back. He or I was stricken in my cheeks. I gave my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. What great cost. What cost in the sense of pain, what cost in the sense of shame he experienced. That was the cost of Jesus' obedience. And he had done nothing wrong. He had done nothing wrong. What an amazing, what an amazing picture of the servant we have here. Marvel at the servant who was obedient at infinitely great cost. This also kind of leaves us mysteriously hanging. Those who would have, 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 have read this when Isaiah wrote it would have been left somewhat in a mystery, wouldn't they? We will learn more in Isaiah 53 about why he suffered, but they are not told why he suffered here. They're just told that he suffered greatly. 
And what I think this means, and I think the impact that this should have on us, and I think those who would have read it, is that Jesus was with us when we suffer. Jesus is with us when we suffer. Now, yes, we know he is the one who is the substitute in our place. And how glorious is that thought. But also, he went through it already. He suffered through it already. And he is with us in our suffering. He enters with us. He's not just outside of us giving us a word of comfort, right? As awesome as that is, he doesn't just give us the word. He is that word of comfort, isn't he? He is that word of comfort. He is the one who is our substitute. He is the one who suffers in our place. But also, he suffers with us as we suffer in this world. He enters into our suffering. He is the word of comfort to us. So what is even more amazing is that not only did he not shrink back from suffering, but rather he gave himself to it willingly. That is amazing. It says, I gave my back, I hid not my face. I have set my face, I love this, like a flint. He was determined. Nothing could stop him from his goal in his pursuit here. He went in with eyes wide open. He was not tricked <laughs> or unaware. He did not hide his face. He was not trying to escape. In the word like flint, what resolve, what perseverance, what dedication. Nothing could turn him to the right or the left. His greatest pursuit and greatest desire was obedience to God and his will no matter what the cost. Single-minded devotion. I think of Jesus when he said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. That was his sustenance. That was his food. But how was he able to endure this? You have to ask the question, how in the world was Jesus able to endure this suffering and this shame? Well, clearly it says here that God empowered him, right? The Lord God has opened my ear. It says, the Lord God helps me, verse 7. It says, the Lord God helps me, verse 9. Clearly, God helped him and enabled him. And it says that emphatically. And we are to understand that clearly. And we see that in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Where he was helped and encouraged and strengthened. But how did God strengthen him? How did God help him? And we're reminded of how Jesus was taught, right? Jesus op uh, God opened his ears. But yet he listened, didn't he? God, Jesus had, a, a, had a, a train of mind. He had a mindset that enabled him to persevere through these difficulties. He had a mindset that enabled him to go through the shame and the suffering. And what is that mindset? Well, it says here that I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. He was able to do this because he knew that God would not let him be ashamed, that God would not let him be disgraced, that God would vindicate him. He knew that he would not be found guilty before a righteous God. He knew that God always rewards and defends the guiltless. He therefore could rest not on the appearance of things. Notice the appearance of things around him. Nothing appeared to be going right. Remember a few weeks ago he says, in vain have I done this. That, that is the appearance, right? That is the way things feel and the way things appear when we look around us, sometimes in this world. But he didn't rest on the appearance or on the circumstances, but on the righteousness of his God. 
He knew who his God was. Therefore, he could endure great suffering with complete confidence. And he knew that his vindication was near. Now you can see this confidence in the way he almost mocks those who are attacking him. He, as if in a trial, says, go ahead and try to bring a charge against me. In verse 8b. Go ahead and try. Bring something against me. Go ahead. Try to bring a charge against me. His record is without stain, and he knows that no charge can stick against him in a court of law. Not only that, but he also says that those who are attacking him themselves will be brought to shame. You know, it might look one way today. It might appear like they are gaining victory, and it looks like that when we look around us, doesn't it? It looks sometimes like the enemy is victorious and it's winning, and there's no hope for us. But Jesus knew beyond that, didn't he? Jesus knew that they were no more durable than an old garment eaten by a moth. Their moment of glory would come to an end. It was limited. And he would be vindicated. His confidence is another contrast to Israel, isn't it? Unlike Jesus, Zion doubted God's love, God's faithfulness, God's justice, God's righteousness. But Jesus was confident in God's vindication. He was confident. He knew better. Jesus' suffering is our supreme example to follow as we suffer through this world, isn't it? Jesus is our example. His suffering and his mindset that enabled him to endure it is the only way that we can endure suffering in this world. Only when, when this world is falling apart and we feel crushed by the realities that we experience, only if we know our God and if we know that he is righteous and his reward is with him and he will bring justice to account. We don't have to see justice on this earth. Yes, we pursue it. Yes, we do whatever we can through the systems that God has set up. But ultimately, we can rest assured that God is going to bring justice to pass. And we know that his reward is with them. And if we are in Christ, we have confidence that God will deliver us. And that his reward is with him. And that it is just a matter of time before everything is made right. That's the only way, church, that you can endure the suffering and the difficulties of this world is if you too arm yourselves with the same mindset of Jesus. But we know that there is more to, than just suffering that Jesus is for us, right? We know as we look at this that he is also our substitute. That we need someone who suffers in our place, who takes our place. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He is the only sacrifice. He is the only one who could be our substitute, our atonement who could bear the weight of our sin, and that's exactly what he did on the cross, so that you and I, who are trusting in Jesus, would not have to bear the weight of our sin. An infinite, eternal God is the only one who could bear the weight of the guilt that we were condemned for, under condemnation for. And so we praise and rejoice in our Savior, that not only is he our example, but he's also our substitute. What more could we have? What greater love can we have than what is before us in the servant today? Only because of him we can say there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What a great thought. In verses 10 through 11, we're given contrasting types of people or paths 
that you could take in life in response to the servant. So here are the contrasting paths that you could take. And this is in response to the suffering servant. It isn't amazing how the servant divides us, right? He divides the world in two. And what we see here is the first path is the path of the servant. It is characterized by fearing God, obeying the voice of a servant, and trusting in him. Those who are on this path fear the Lord. And fearing the Lord is a chief characteristic of God's people, isn't it? It is the very introduction to knowing any wisdom and knowledge is fearing God. Without the fear of God, there is no salvation. The fear of God is what it means to have faith in God. It means to see Him as He actually is and to revere Him as He actually is in His greatness, in His glory. It's to take the reality of God seriously. God is not merely a friend. You can't be saved and think of God as merely a friend, someone who cares for you as a friend. He is infinitely greater than that. He is the almighty God, and he is to be feared. And God's children are chiefly characterized as those who fear God. You are not a believer if you don't fear God. Those who are on this path are, uh, are those who listen to the voice of his servant. They, vo- they hear the voice of Jesus because Jesus is the voice of God. And that's what it says here. They listen to God's voice. D- do you listen to God's voice? Do you fear the Lord? If you do, then you are on this path. You're on this path. Those on this, pa- on this path go through great darkness, but they trust in the Lord and rely on him through the darkness. Now, I'm not saying any of these things we have down pat or perfectly, because obviously we don't. But these things are true of us, even if we're hanging by a thread, right? This darkness is what we might call the dark night of the soul. It's when we go through times where we can't make sense of life, we're in great discouragement, we have great questions, and all we can know is the character of God as revealed in his word. Other than that, it might appear like this world and everything else is just confusing and makes no sense at all. And sometimes God wants his people to go through such darkness, not because of any fault in them, but because of his mysterious purpose that God has for them. Sometimes it's because of a sin in our lives, but sometimes it's just because God wants us to go through it. Sometimes darkness is the path that God intends for us. We cannot see the light of his countenance. What is required for those on this path is the exercising of faith and courage. Darkness is where our faith is practiced. Did you realize that? If it wasn't for darkness, our faith would not be really practiced. Listen to what Ortland said. Faith offsets darkness. Darkness is what faith is for. It is there that we trust in the name of the Lord. In such cases, what God requires of us is not an empty profession of faith. We, we can give all kinds of professions of faith in the light, right? When things are going well for us. But what, what God requires of us and what is exposed is wholehearted, real, costly obedience and faith that is inside of us. And that is revealed during those difficult times. And often what's revealed is a need for repentance, right? And growth and God changes us and grows us through those times. Some of the people I've met with Um, have constantly talked to me week after week as they've gone through great struggles of the sin in their lives. And they're just like, they can't even imagine 
the sin that's coming out through their struggles. And I say, you know what? It's easy to not see our sin when things are going well, right? But when things become difficult, then our lack of faith is often exposed. And that is God making us more like himself. That is God's grace in our lives. So it's not surprising that our sin is exposed when we go through difficulties. That's God's grace in our lives. It's God refining us and changing us and making us more like him. Don't despise those times. And don't ignore the sin that is exposed. It is God making us more like himself. And God wants us to go through that darkness so that our faith can be refined and it can grow. This is the same type of darkness that Judah and that Jesus went through. And dark, the darkness that Judah went through was earned, but the darkness that Jesus went through was not his own doing, but was on our behalf. The good news is that even though we followed that same path he experienced, yet we know that he is with us. He is with us through it. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. And that's what Hebrews 13 verse 5 says, right? He doesn't tell us we're not going to go through difficulties. He doesn't say we won't go through struggles, but he says he will be with us. How many people have experienced such darkness? So maybe some of us are going through it right now. But this is the only path that leads to salvation when we travel this path by faith in Christ. Are you on this path? Are you listening to Jesus, trusting, relying on him? Do you have the fear of God that characterizes your life? The contrasting path is the path of opposition to the servant. These are completely contrasting paths, and that's verse 11. There's a sort of light that you can manufacture by your own resources when you do not like the reality of the world around us and you want to make up something in order to compensate for the difficulties of life. You can create an idol. You can create something to worship, something to get you by, kind of like a sugar pill, something to make you feel good while you're in the difficulties of life. You can manufacture something, some kind of light that you create yourself to get you through it, the difficult times. And this is nothing less than idolatry, anything that we trust outside of God. And whenever we don't equip ourselves with God, whenever we don't look to him, we create something else to get us through the difficulties of this world. And that's what Judah was faced at this time, weren't they? Were they going to follow the Babylonians and worship their gods? Or were they going to follow God and trust and rely on him and live in the fear of God? through the darkness, right? And the problem is that the light we create for ourselves that we clothe ourselves in will in the end burn us for eternity. What an awful reality for a little bit of fake peace and comfort. Is it worth it for a little bit of fake peace and comfort to gain eternal burning? There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Proverbs 16, 25. Those who create their own life's lights for this world are doomed. Ortland says this. We can expect moments in this pilgrimage when the only way into the light of life of John 8, verse 12, is the walking in darkness of Isaiah 50, verse 10. And which would you rather have? The darkness of faithful obedience leading to our vindication or the light of self-will leading to endless miseries? This is the question of our existence. 
So I want to ask you, what way characterizes you? Which path are you taking? Are you walking by the torch that you have created? If so, flee to Christ. Look to Him today. Or are you living in the fear of God, listening to Jesus and His words? This is the path that leads to life. This is the path of life. This is the path of those who have life in them. So if this is not you, then cry out to God. Say, God, give me life today. The life that is only found in your son, Jesus. And forgive me for lighting these fake lights that appear to light for a moment, but will be our undoing for eternity. Let Jesus be your savior. He is the only one who can save you. And beg him to save you from your sins. If you are in Christ, be comforted by looking to your Savior and his love. You need to see God's love for you in Jesus. There's no greater way to see that. He has a word for you and his word is life. Oh, that God would open up your ears today to hear it. Oh, that you would see in your suffering that he is with you in the midst of it. Not only that, but he suffers for you in your place. He is with you and suffers with you. He is the only one who can save you. So take fresh courage today. Take, find joy in your Savior. He is the only one who can deliver us. And he has provided everything we need in his Son. Let's pray. Dear Father, Lord, we thank you, God, for the servant song. We thank you, God, for the reminder of your amazing love for us and your amazing grace and your amazing goodness, Lord. Lord, there is no, there is no hope outside of your son, Jesus. Lord, we can create all the lights we want. We can formulate all the ideas we think would work. We can even put your word into it every once in a while. But Lord, your word is the only place Your word is the only place where we can hear from the living God, where we are given the words of life. Where else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to know and believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God. And so, Lord, we ask you today to open up our eyes, open up our ears. Lord, help us to live this life in the fullness of view of you, Jesus. Lord, keep us from losing our focus off of you. Lord, remind us today of your great love. And Lord, may we endure patiently. May we pursue your will patiently, enduringly, confidently that you will vindicate us. And our reward is with you. In Jesus' name, amen.